I'm not dancing, I promise. <laughs> kind of like scratching my head. But I, I am, I'm begging you, come on, support it. And uh, then the next Wednesday night, uh, as has already been mentioned, our team of 46 will be in Ensenada, Mexico. And uh, there are cards up here. You probably saw me putting them out, but I'm going to tell you what to do with those cards uh, b- before the end of the service. So, Also, we've got a lot going on. We're 30 days away from our third annual Trunk or Treat. So go ahead, be buying up the good candy. Don't buy that cheap candy. Buy that good candy. Those kids will come back if you give them good candy. We buy the good candy, the Snickers, the you know, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, because they come back. And then the next year, you got to buy more. So, so get the candy. Go ahead and start thinking about your trunk. Um, and, and we're going to have a good time. It's a great time for all generations to come, kind of be together, kind of hang out. And it's going to be a great time. So take your Bible, your device, and go to Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the New Testament. So if you can find Matthew, find Matthew and go left. There's only four chapters uh, as we did with First John, as we're spending seven weeks in this study, I want to challenge you to read it each week. I promise you, if you go to the Bible app, and depending on the translation, you pull down from the top and hit play, you can listen to this book in 15 minutes. It's that short, but it's a powerful book. It's a book that we need to hear in our day and time, and I think I'm going to be able to unpack that a little bit more as we start digging into it today. But, I, but I, want to ch- I want you to think about something. We are 80 years away from World War II. My grandfather um, that I talked about last week, he was a man of, he was a part of the men of Metz. They liberated a town during the war, and he was in the 82nd Airborne and was part of that group that went in and liberated that town from, from the Germans. And, you know, for us in this room, that was my grandfather. My grandfather's been gone almost 20 years in this room who were old enough to remember living during World War II. So we definitely don't have anybody in this room who probably remembers what it was like living before that. And I would go on further to say probably no one in this room knows what it's like to live before Nazi Germany in Germany. If I'm wrong, raise your hand. Are there anyone in here who was alive pre-Nazi Germany? I didn't think so, because that was a long time ago. Around about about 100 years ago. 100 years ago was the 1920s. You know what happened in the 1920s? You had the first edition of Time magazine. Isn't that crazy to think about? 100 years of Time magazine. It was the roaring 20s. Prohibition was existing in America. Well, then you have Nazi come, the Nazi Germans come in, they... Um, they take over, they start trying to expand, there's a war, and after the war, we go into the Cold War in the 50s. Now, some of you, is it, is it me? Man, it is me. I'm just that good. Can you hear me now? You know the problem, Joe, I'm going to have to talk with my hands only one-handed now, bro. In the 50s, we were in the time when the Cold War began. And as you remember your your world history, what was built in Germany in the 50s? The Berlin Wall. My my dad, who was 101st Airborne, was stationed on that wall in Germany. They took a people group and they cut them in half. When I was in school, we learned that there were two countries. There was West Germany and East Germany. But 
then on November 9th, 1989, if anyone remembers the words of Ronald Reagan, he said, what? Tear this wall down. They tore it down. And those people who had been alive at that point, about 40 or 50 years removed from what life was like before Nazi Germany, now all of a sudden had no border, had no, nothing between them, and they're trying to figure out what life's like as a unified country. Those who believed in democracy with people who believed in communism. 50, 40, 50 years had enough time to develop new habits and new culture, new technologies. Now all of a sudden they're living together and that's the way the Jews found themselves in Jerusalem after the exile. In 586 B.C., we believe that is when the third deportation of the Jews from Jerusalem and Judah went to Babylon. It, it, it occurred over a period of time. There were three massive deportations. And by 586, the city of Jerusalem was decimated. The, ta- the temple was destroyed. This, this beautiful place of laden with gold that only, only you can read and imagine how beautiful Solomon's temple was. And the people living there, that those that were not participating in the paganism of the nation would come to this temple. They'd come for the feast and they'd see this glorious view. Those of you going on the Israel trip in a few months, we're going to be able to ascend up to that plateau and see where it was. But even today, the Dome of the Rock does not hold the glory that was Solomon's temple. And so they leave. They're gone. They're taken. And their city's destroyed. They have no remembrance of it. They didn't live it. And then comes 538 B.C. After the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians and Cyrus makes a decree and he says, go home. He sends the Jews home and, and through the ministry of Ezra that you read about in the book of Ezra, you can see how they came and the rebuilding of the temple was initiated. And then through Nehemiah's efforts, they came and they rebuilt those walls, but none of it compared to the height of the glory of David and Solomon's kingdom. But you know, the sad part is the Jews knew it was coming. They knew that there was coming a day because after they left Egypt, after they had left bondage, after they had left slavery, they... And they travel all this way based on the promise that God was going to put them in a land flowing of milk and honey. All that they endured when they, when they get to Mount Sinai and, they, and, and Moses brings that, that covenant to them. Say covenant. God makes a covenant with these people. He chooses Israel to be his covenant people. And he says to them, if you will keep my word, if you keep my law, I will bless you. But if you break my law, you break my covenant, I will curse you. In fact, we we know Jeremiah 29, 11 really well. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to harm you, to give you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future, but they don't read verse 10. Where verse 10 says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon. What? 70 years of what? 70 years of exile. He told them they would go into exile. And he says... But I will fulfill my good word and bring you back to this place. You read Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3 and you read the same thing. Where he says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to mess up. You're going to fall away. You're not going to keep my covenant. And he says, so it will be when all of these things have come on you. 
the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where your Lord has banished you. This is in Deuteronomy. He says, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him, then the Lord will restore you from captivity. You go back to Jeremiah 29, and you hear this promise. He says, I will be found by you, God says, when you seek with me, seek me with your whole heart. And He says, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And He did. And here's Malachi, who's stepping in most likely in the later part of the 400s B.C. I kind of believe this book was written about 430, 431. But this is the last prophetic book of the Old Testament. From that point to the time Jesus comes is what we call the intertestamental period, and it was a period of silence. And the last message that God gives to His people, His chosen people, a people of His own covenant. Say covenant. I want you to really think about that word. God made a covenant with His people. The last thing He says to them in the summary of this book is, take God serious. If you want to write that somewhere on your bulletin or in your notes or your journal, however you keep it, You want to summarize the book of Malachi? Take God serious. The word Malachi means my messenger. My messenger. And so God is going to deliver a message. And it's it's interesting because the way this book is set up and the way that that you'll see and the way we're going to preach this in, in its structure is there's a series of how questions. Say how. It's kind of like when your kid comes up to you and you say, well, I need you to clean your room, your kids. Well, how am I supposed to do that? I want you to think about it like that, with sass in it, sarcasm. There's going to be these series of, rhetor- uh, of, of rhetorical questions where God's going to make a statement of truth. And Israel, in, in, in kind of a, a general sense, is going to ask back, well, how did we do that or how did we not do that? And then God's going to give a defense. So if you look in your study guides, you should see where it says the structure. It should be assertion questioning, and response. I want you to write those in because each study we do, this is the pattern it's going to follow. This will be in your study guide as we begin to break this down because God is challenging them in their post-exile community. They haven't seen temple worship. They're, they're trying to get reestablished. They're trying to reacclimate, but they have no reference point. Just like the Germans, after the Berlin Wall comes down, they didn't know what it was like to be a unified country. They didn't know what it was like to participate. And here's the exiles returning, trying to figure life out. And even with the rebuilding of the wall, even with the rebuilding of the temple, they were still like, well, God doesn't care about us. Look at what He did to us. Don't you find yourself that way sometimes in a holy pity party where bad things happen to you, life doesn't go the way you want it, and you're just like, God, God don't care about me. Where are you at, God? I mean, I'm, I'm standing here. Do you not see me? Do you not see? I mean, it seems like that's kind of been the theme of a lot of our series is lately, but, but maybe the reason I have to keep bringing it in is because God's still trying to penetrate our hearts to help us understand God does let us go through bad things for a reason, but that does not mean that He's deserted you. And He's speaking to this post-exilic, probably, again, about over, at least over a hundred years removed 
from the exile. And he's calling them to say, take me serious. Because I see three themes going on in this book. I, I see the theme of spiritual apathy. This idea of getting lazy. Not engaged in our disciplines, in our worship, in our serving, in our giving. But I also see this theme of a loss of faith, where I'm just beat down, I've lost hope. But there's also this theme of, of immorality. They're, they're bringing second-hand goods to offer to God. They're, they're living in immorality. They're intermarrying with the, with the Gentiles, but they're also practicing divorce on the regular. There's no fidelity being exhibited in, in the country. And so I ask, I, I kind of just... I love to converse about things like this, and I ask, what comes first? If you look at these arrows on this, on this graphic, you will see those three words. Well, does one cause the other two? Or are they all kind of interconnected? What do I mean by that? Well, take, take for example this. Let's say I'm walking with the Lord, and I've just got confidence Jesus loves me, and I'm, I'm doing the Christian thing, but I kind of got this little side gig over here going on on the side where I'm not really... I don't really have a whole lot of just moral standards. And so I'm living in my sin in one life, but I've got this, this other image everybody sees, the outward. Well, I'm here to tell you, the more you dabble in the sin, it's eventually going to make you spiritually apathetic. You will grieve the Holy Spirit of God who's supposed to be in your heart if you know Christ. And it will cause you to start losing faith, focus, confidence in God. Well, let's, let's try another scenario. What if something bad happens in your life? I mean, something really, really bad happens and you go, you know what? Forget God. But you know, because of culture, you're still kind of going through the Christian motions. You go to worship, you give, but, you're, but your faith is way down here. And so to kind of deal with your grief, you kind of start dabbling in things that you know is not good for you. Y'all see how these link together? And so I've got kind of this theory that if one increases, I want you to look at this next image. If one increases, they all three increase. But here's the good news. If one decreases, it affects the others as well. So if I begin to take conviction, like, you know what, Lord? You have said in your word, this is not good for me. I'm going to draw a line right here. I'm going to repent of this behavior in my life. You know what will start increasing? Your confidence in God is increasing and it begins to draw you into those things that connects us with God. Y'all see that? I mean, agree or disagree with me, but that's what I see screaming at us out of this text today is this balance between these three things. The people in Israel, this is, this is a good way to describe them. It says life was not easy for them. They continued to live under Gentile sovereignty even though they were back in their own land. Harvests were poor and locust plagues were a reoccurring problem. Why? Because they had broken the covenant. Even though God had brought them back, they still weren't living in the covenant. God said, keep my word. They were not taking God serious. And he said that most of the people remained cold-hearted toward Yahweh God. They didn't take it serious. They were apathetic. They had lost their confidence and trust. And they were living in immorality. This author says the spiritual, ethical, and the moral tone of the nation was low. But guys, listen. We're in a new covenant. 
And that's the point. Everybody in this room ought to start smiling. Because God brought the old covenant to be a tutor that leads us to the new covenant. In that old covenant, yeah, it, it required me to take my sheep and my lambs and sacrifice them. It required me to, to, to obey the laws and to bring my stuff to the temple. But now I'm the temple. Bible says you are the temple of the Lord. You are the, the one in whom God has put His Spirit if you have trusted Christ. That in this new covenant, the love of God is expressed through His Son and what He did on the cross. And I can have relationship with God, a loving relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid for your sins. He paid for my sins. And to know Christ, to accept the gospel means that now I'm in covenant relationship with Him. And that's my confidence. These people that had returned from exile had no confidence. They had forgotten the ways of the Lord. They had forgotten the promises of the Lord. They had forgotten the covenant of the Lord. And now Malachi is going to write to them and he's going to set the record straight. So guys, would y'all stand with me? This message is only an hour and a half long, so we're, we're about a third of the way through now. Chips will be at the Mexican restaurant when you get there. I'm going to use what I believe should be the word that this says. It says the oracle, but it's the burden. It's the burden. It means something you are carrying that's heavy. And I'm telling you guys, my wife can attest to this. This message was hard to prepare. You know why? Because it's a burden. It's a burden to call out to people and say, are you right with the Lord? Are you walking in Him? Are you stagnant? Are you cold? And that's what I want us to hear when we read this today. He says that the oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi, meaning my messenger. And here's the formula, ready? He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the statement of assertion. But you say, Israel, how have you loved us? Remember, keep sarcasm in the mind. <laughs> how have you loved us? Then God says this. Listen carefully. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his heritance for jackals in the wilderness. Though Edom, who is the, who is the descendants of Esau, says, we have, we have been beaten down, but we will return and we will build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear it down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant. How long? Forever. Has anybody planned a vacation to the, to the country of Edom lately? It's not there. Jerusalem's still there, isn't it? Your eyes will see this and will say, the Lord be magnified. Say magnified. Actually, let's say this together. The Lord be magnified. Ready? The Lord be magnified. Beyond the border of Israel. You know why? Because Israel was to be the blesser of nations. Let's pray. Father, there's so much I want to say. But you know what I'm thankful for, Lord? That even in the mess of the words that comes out of my mouth, that you can speak to hearts because of your word, not mine. So, Lord, I pray that we are standing here, sitting under your word, letting your word read to us, and that you will speak to us today what we need in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for our blank-filling people in the room, 
Let's start right here with the question. Question number one. The blanks are this. I have loved you. Israel says, how? And here's the, here's the truth. God was faithful to Israel. So we go back to verse number one. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi. Again, this was a serious message that he was bringing. That's why I think the word burden gives it a little bit more of a punch, a little more of a thrust. That God is speaking to his people because there's something wrong. How many of you have been in the doctor's office and the doctor comes in and his head's down and he's like, well, i, I got to tell you something. We don't like to hear that, do we? I really don't like to hear that when anybody comes up to me. Like Some people will come up to me and say, hey, um, I've I got to share something with you. And my heart sinks immediately because I think, well, well, this is serious. This is serious. Tony Evans is the one who coined that phrase to summarize this book. Take God serious. And that's his invitation. So, so here's the question in verse number two. I have loved you. That's a, a perfect tense. He's loved Israel. Why? Because he called and chose Israel, Jacob, from the womb. When we read the book of Genesis, we find out that, that God speaks to Rebekah and says, there are two nations in your womb. And he tells him, I have chosen Jacob. Well, what's the problem with choosing Jacob? There's a lot of problems. Where do you want me to start? Well, in that culture, the oldest son was to take on the role of being the blesser to the rest of the family. We go all the way back to Abraham. Who was Abraham's oldest child? It wasn't Isaac. It was Ishmael. But God told him he wasn't the son of promise. He was, it was going to be Isaac. And Isaac miraculously comes into this world and he becomes the one who's the blesser. In fact, Abraham, if you remember, sends Ishmael away. And he becomes a nation, but that sets up the tension of the nations that were in the Middle East. Then you fast forward and Rebekah's going to give birth and it says when she's giving birth, Esau comes out with Jacob holding on to his foot and leg called the supplanter. My name is derived from Jacob. I, my name means supplanter, whatever that means. I guess it means the plants that I put in the pots this week. I supplanted something. No. It means he was already trying to take his footing and pull it out from under him. But who was the older? Esau was the older one. Edom means red. He was a red skin. But, but hold on a second. Who was more righteous in the story? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about, all right, what charges can you bring against Esau in his righteousness? He was hungry, and he agreed to what had already been prophesied over him. Hey, I'm hungry. I'll give you my birthright. Who was the deceptive one all throughout his life? Jacob. The only other thing we see about Esau is that maybe he was going to kill Jacob for taking his birthright, for posing to be him. How many of you would go up and punch somebody in the mouth if they posed to be you? Jacob was not righteous. In fact, if you look at this, if choosing was based on righteousness, Esau should have been chosen, not Jacob. But the Bible said, listen, he says, was Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Listen to what Tony Evans says. In the Bible, this love-hate contrast has to do with selection, choosing something. For instance, 
Jesus tells his followers they cannot be his disciples unless they hate their parents. God chose Jacob, that is Israel, to establish a covenant relationship with him and receive his blessings. Because even in that, God loved him a little bit because he gave him at least land called Seir, the the mountains of Seir. It was a wilderness area, but, but that was Edom's home. That was their place. But what's the difference? I want you to look at verse number three. He says, I've hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Well, how's that any difference, God, than what you did to Jerusalem? And we stand here sometimes, we're like, God, I see so-and-so over there, and they're being blessed, and you're blessing them, but I ain't getting any of those blessings. Why are you, why are you leaving me out? Why, why are you against me? You, see, you see, the, see that contrast there. They both experienced desolation, but verse number 4, check that out. He says, though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. So did Jerusalem, so did the Jews. But whose city stood? Jerusalem did. Why? Because God said so. And that makes us that, that takes us back to this idea. He says, you, you, how have you loved us? I've loved you because I am faithful to you. Why did they go in? Why did they go into exile? Because they sinned against God. But God in his goodness, God in his word, God in his covenant faithfulness said, I will bring you back and I will restore you. Many of you today, you're looking at the desolation in your life. And you're standing there and you're pointing the finger at God. And you, say, you may say, you know what, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. I'm like, you know what, you do that. Go ahead. But has it occurred to you that maybe you're reaping what you've sown? Maybe the desolation in your life, you may not can directly link it, but maybe because you're living spiritually apathetic, maybe because you're living in a lack of faith, maybe because you're living in immorality, the stuff that's happening to you is happening for a reason. If you're not a child of God, it could be just the natural consequence of sin. But if you're a child of God, because in our culture, everyone's a victim. It's everybody else's fault. And that's why biblically, everything in our culture is backwards. Not because of the sin in our culture, yes, but because of the way we view ourselves. Every one of you in this room, I hate to tell you, is a sinner. You are a sinner. Jesus Christ loved you so much that he came and brought a new covenant. Jesus Christ loved you enough that he would take on the form of man, die on the cross, the death that you and I deserve because of our sin, and extends covenant love and relationship to to us through him if we'll accept the free gift of salvation that he's offering. And then we live in it. Listen, some of you in this room, you went to an altar about 77 years ago. But you haven't lived in covenant relationship with the Lord. In some ways, some of you went down to an altar, you joined a church and you were baptized, but you really don't know Jesus Christ. You've lived a life since then. You've gone through some motions, 
but you don't know Jesus. In fact, I was talking to a family member about someone that I went to school with that was a little bit older than me, and, and she would go and do ministry in other churches, and I kind of want to leave it general because I don't want to call this person out. But as she was sharing the story, she said about a year ago, this young lady, well, I say young, I feel like I'm young. Is 50 young? Thank you. Y'all lost an opportunity there. Said she went to an altar and stood up and said, I, I, I knew of Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. And she was 50 years old. Don't let church culture, cultural Christianity, convince you that you're saved when you're not. If you have not Christ, God who died on the cross was raised again, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Him. And I'm begging you today to know this Jesus that we're preaching about. Because in that, if you'll look at that last verse, he says, your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. One of the problems with Edom is that they had attacked um, Israel. They had refused to let Israel come through their borders during the wilderness wanderings. And he says in Obadiah 10, because of the violence towards your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame forever and and cut off. They were getting what they deserved, but they didn't get to rebuild because they were not God's chosen people. Y'all see that? That's the text, okay? So what I want to do now, though, is remind you of something. We have a new covenant. The old covenant pointed us to what Christ would do, living that sinless life, dying on that cross, and when we receive eternal life from Him, we become that people of God's own possession. That we get to know that God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for a thousand generations. We know that God, that God of 1 Peter 2.9 who said, For once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy and now you have. Or the God of Romans 5.8 that says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you thankful for that? That while you were running from God, God had you in his mind and wanted to call you to himself? To know him, to know Christ? Or as Ephesians 2, 4 said, but God being rich in his mercy, because of his great love, he has loved us. Well, how can he do that? 1 John 4, 16 is clear. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. Why? Because God is love. So what are the, what are the benefits of that? Well, let me give you five benefits of knowing this God of love, number one is that God keeps His promises. And everybody said, listen, the only way that you know Jesus Christ is that He promised. Romans 10, 9 is clear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you would be what? Saved. Saved from what? Sin. You need your sin forgiven. Otherwise, you can't enter in to the presence of the Lord. You need it forgiven. And guys, let me remind you, we could play church all day long, but Jesus is coming back. Don't, don't forget that. Jesus is coming back, and we want him to come back. But at the same time, it saddens our hearts because we know people right now that don't know Jesus. And just like Paul wrote in, his, in, in the book of Romans, he, he yearned for his countrymen to be saved. And we should yearn for our countrymen, our family, other Tocoans. Can I say it that way? Tocoans? Am I right? I'm still new. I'm nine months into this. I, I, I'm getting there. Our fellow Georgians, our, feather, fe, our fellow United States people, everybody, 
We should yearn. It should break our hearts when we walk around and we see the living dead because they don't know Christ. He said in Joshua 21, 45, not one of the good promises the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed, and they won't fail. There are still promises to come, but the main promise is that Jesus said, if you will confess and believe, I will save you. He keeps his promises, but you know what else he does? He upholds his covenant. We revisit that verse. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Included in that plan was 70 years in exile. So this is not uh, this is not unicorn lollipops. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. I, I know the plans God you have for me declares you. You can't read yourself into that text until you read that it's addressed to Israel. Are you willing to also ask that God send you into exile to get you right with Him? Sometimes God sends you into those periods of time because He needs to get your attention. He needs to get your focus because we're spiritually apathetic, we're lacking faith, and we're living in immorality, and we need to take God serious. Say that with me. Take God serious. And that's the attention He's trying to get us. But this same God, this God that's faithful, through whom we were called to be in fellowship with the Lord, has an everlasting love. Listen to Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And he promises, he said, I will build you up, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take your tambourines and go forth to the dances as merrymakers. I will, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. You get that? Jeremiah is prophesying from Jerusalem after The northern kingdom was gone. And he's saying all of it's going to be restored. And he says the planters will plant and will enjoy them. You know what that means? He restores their sustenance, but he restores their joy. How many of you came in here today and you're just beat down to the point? You said, I know what, I just can't get any lower. Can I tell you that the joy of the Lord is yours for the taking? The joy of the Lord is yours for the taking. All the things that's happened in your life doesn't compare to the goodness that the gospel offers. This world is temporary. What you're going through, although it may seem like you've been in that situation forever, is temporary. But this God has an everlasting love. There's nothing to contain it. There's nothing that can hold it. It goes on forever. And He's extended that to you in Christ. And you know what else God does? He restores His people. He restores His people. Joel 2.25, one of my favorite verses. It starts in 23 by saying this, So rejoice, sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. Again, there's that joy, that theme of joy. Be glad because of what? Because of who God is. Then He says this, For He has given you the early rain for your vindication and has poured down before you rain the earlier, early and the latter rains. Well, why, why does that matter? Well, if you were in a drought, you'd want rain too. Right? Oh, wait a minute. Now, y'all aren't listening because we're, we're in a drought right now. Some of you had planted some stuff that didn't come up because the rain didn't come. They had been in drought for years, and locusts had eaten anything that came up. So now he's saying, I'm going to send it, and here's what's going to happen. Your threshing floors will be full of grain, and vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Abundance in this restoration. But here it is. 
Then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Some of you, you've been in it for years. But can I tell you what? In Jesus Christ, he'll restore all the years you've lost. And ultimately, we're going to walk into a place that right now, Jesus is already preparing your place. He promised his disciples in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you again to myself that where I am, there you will be also. He's a God of promise. He's a God who upholds his covenant. Right? He's a God of everlasting love and he's a God that restores his people. Why? Because in Christ we are loved. In Christ we are loved. In his In His power, He gives us new life, new purpose, new hope, new direction, new passion, and new success. At the end of that Romans 8 chapter, He says this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Bring it all. Bring it all to the Lord. Throw it in His face. Throw it on the altar. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This God, this God wants you to know Him and the love that He extends through His Son in Christ alone. God didn't break His promise to Israel. He brought them back. He said He would, right? Did He say it was going to be easy? Did he say he was just going to walk right in and feel like they're at Disney World and everything just kind of happy and laughter and bubbles blowing and glitter falling? No. He brought them back. He didn't bring Edom back. God kept his word. Now, I don't know about you this morning. Maybe you've been through a rough time. Maybe you've experienced some kind of loss. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried and things still just can't work out. Maybe, maybe you know what? You are the odd man out or you feel like you're isolated. Maybe you live on the margins. You're marginalized. People have pushed you out. Maybe your own family has rejected you. Maybe you sense like you're a failure. Maybe you sense that everybody right now is looking at you and judging you. But I can tell you that today that God in Christ is laying all of that aside to give you the free gift of eternal life. If you would just believe. If you would accept Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross, raised again. If you believe that, He said He'd save you. So today, are you lost? Maybe this will kind of help you because I gave you three areas and these three areas are going to keep coming back up throughout this series. Spiritually apathetic, a lack of faith, and living in immorality. If those three things describe you, I would ask and challenge you maybe to consider, have I met Jesus Christ? Have I been born again? Am I that new creature that He promised? Because if it hasn't, Don't leave here today with some kind of false assurance and your destination be going to hell. Nobody wants that for you. But just like Israel had fallen out of covenant relationship with God and deserved to be in exile, anyone who is in hell has chosen to be there. They've rejected the free gift. And in humility, God is inviting us to come. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to stand with me. One of the most beautiful things I saw last weekend during our breakaway weekend was that the last night after Clayton King had given the invitation, 
had asked people to raise their hands and all that stuff. Then we went into a final song. And without hesitation, droves of our students came down and knelt at this altar. They were crying out to God, asking God to touch them, to touch their friends. Some of us in here today, we need to be reminded that God loves us. We feel like everything has beat us up. We're living like these exiles. We've just given up on God. We've stopped living for Him all because we can't process what's in the past. But can I tell you today, come down to this altar and maybe pray this simple prayer like, God, forgive me of my sins and help me to see your love. Help me to see your love in my life today. And maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to come in here and pray for fields of faith. But I also want to challenge you to do this. Right here in front of my feet are the 46 names of the people going to Ensenada next week. We're no more special than any other mission group that's probably out there right now doing stuff. But would you come up here and take a card now? I mean, these cards may get gone because I hope more than 46 of you will want to pray. But would you be willing to take this card and put it on your dash, put it on your fridge, put it on your supper table and pray every day for the name that you have from, from, from October 8th to, to October 13th. Caleb's name's even in there. He's riding, he's riding shotgun with me. So if you pray for him, you pray for me. It's kind of, it goes hand in hand, right? Don't we love Caleb? Now y'all clap for him. I know I appreciate him very much. And I know that he'll appreciate, as the rest of us will, that you come and take one of these cards and, and you pray over it the next week. But here's my prayer. I believe that in this bundle of names is somebody who's never led someone to Jesus Christ and they're going to get to do that next week. That's my hope. That someone for the first time will get to see somebody, witness somebody pass from darkness to light. Yeah, sure, they can call, they can call the preacher or a leader to come over there and do it for them. No, I want to see them do it. I want to see the joy on their face when they hear somebody say, yes, I believe and I'm saved. I, I'm, I'm praying for that. So would you move in just a minute as we sing, Father, as we come to this place of prayer and decision. God, is, uh, we're wrestling with this idea of just being assured that, God, you love us. There's so much stuff against us in this world. So many things that come against us, Lord, and some of us have brought in the weight of the world. But, God, would you take that weight off of them and remind them that you are a God who keeps his promises, that, that, you, that you uphold your covenant. God, that you are a God of everlasting love. And God, some of us need that restoration. We need to know and be known again, God, that you love us. So Lord, as we sing, as we pour our hearts out to you, Lord, move in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.